Hey, everybody. I want to ask a favor. We want you to tell us a little bit about you. Please participate in a brief survey at cnn.com slash audie. That's cnn.com slash a-u-d-i-e. In the winter of 1777, it was harsh and cold as the Continental Army marched to Valley Forge. That's President Biden speaking on Friday, giving a history lesson on the campaign trail. I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. Now, at Valley Forge, George Washington hoped that, quote, with one heart and one mind, his men would surmount every difficulty of the winter ahead. And they did. Learned new tactics, gathered their resources, boosted morale, and then entered the fight once more. And if that symbolism hits you like, I don't know, a musket ball, the Biden campaign has done its job. Today we gather in a new year, some 246 years later, just one day before January 6th. A day forever shared in our memory because it was on that day that we nearly lost America, lost it all. Today we're here to answer the most important of questions. Is democracy still America's sacred cause? Phil Mattingly is host of CNN This Morning. He's uniquely qualified to help us put Joe Biden's democracy speech in context. Phil, welcome to the assignment. Thanks for having me. All right. So first, let's nerd out on Valley Forge, which I know seems ridiculous, (laughs) but it's not starting small, right? Tell me why you were kind of interested in teasing this out more, because you've watched a lot of Biden speeches. Yeah, uh, probably all of them, uh, for the most part, to the point where I can mostly give you verbatim what he's going to say through most of his stories, even the anecdotal ones that aren't scripted or weren't drafted uh, by Vinay, his speechwriter, or Mike Donilon, who's kind of his uh, mind meld, uh, if you will, inside the White House. You know, what was striking to me for this was, was twofold. One, there's been a lot of criticism of the Biden campaign over the course of the last several months that they haven't been active enough, that he hasn't been out enough, that he's been sheltered. And this was really kind of the big moment of 2024, the first real campaign event he's had since he launched. And it felt like a kickoff. Yeah, like, I don't know exactly. if there was a sale on flags, but like <laughs> the whole exactly. imagery, they and, made up for the fact that they weren't outdoors. Yeah, this, they like, went very intense official imagery. They went big right off the bat, which is an interesting contrast given the criticism they've been facing. But for me, it was more of the imagery and the, the content of the speech and how it tracks back since he announced his presidency. And I I understand people might not remember 2019, April 25th, 2019, when uh, then Vice President Biden announced that he was running for office with a lot of people who weren't sure that he would be able to do it. And a primary where he looked terrible for a large portion of the primary until he ended up just sweeping through. But it, it is so at the core of who he is both as a person, as a politician, but also how he's operated inside the White House. In what way? In the sense that for him, Charlottesville, with the marchers, uh, with torches that was, I think, shocking to the entire country, was the moment where he decided that I'm going to give it another go. And that through line of, of that moment through the entire 2020 campaign, of which there were speeches in Warm Springs and Gettysburg, FDR for Warm Springs, Abraham Lincoln for Gettysburg, through the first three years of his presidency, where he's talked constantly about the battle between autocracy and democracy, and also in the lead up to the 2022 midterms, where he had a speech on democracy uh, in Philadelphia and 
it's not because people are telling him outside of his very small unit of advisors, this is the winning political argument. It's actually quite the opposite. It's because he is of the mind that both for the country and the kind of place in the world, but also the moment we're in, it's the message that people need to hear to right. draw the contrast. And draw the contrast, I feel like, is code for something. It's like political speak, right? Yeah. It means like show everyone how you're different. Because I feel in a way the political class knows that there's a bunch of people out in the world that are like, I don't know, it's all the same. How will any of these guys make a difference in my life? And so like they spend all their time talking about this, draw the contrast, draw the contrast, which you would think would not be that hard given the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and like everything, you know what I mean? Like yeah. resume, temperament, approach to politics, like before you even got to policy, they're radically different people. Does Biden actually see himself kind of connected to those historical figures? I think he sees the moment as connected to those historical moments. And I think that's an important difference. I, I don't think... Okay, but like in 2020, it was Gettysburg, right? right? This is the site of Lincoln's Gettysburg address. So in a moment like that, what is like he's trying to say... The country is at its darkest place. What is the comparable historical moment that can help draw that out, right? Can help show people that there's a path forward. And I think so much of his, both not just during his campaign, but also in his first year or two in office, was trying to convey to the American people that it has been bad before and we found a way out of it. We trust ourselves to find a way out of it. We always find a way out of it. Believe to some degree, believe in yourselves, believe in the country, believe in what we've done. And I think both Warm Springs, FDR was, you know, coming out of the Great Depression into World War II, the very real possibility that fascism could not only take over Europe, but the entire world, and the country found a way. We've been through terrible times before as a nation, and we found our way out of it if you pursue the belief in the system, belief in the pillars of what has made the country what it has been over the last 240 plus years. And if you don't follow the path of those who history has repeatedly shown only exist to further divide society. Now, it is absolutely fair to make the argument that his predictions of you know, coming out of the darkness and of the divisions being able to be healed, of the cooling of, of tensions and passions have been way off. Um, but there's a view that he still holds today, which is it, it's just going to take a little longer. It's going to take a little longer because I don't think anybody yeah. expected Trump to still be where he is. How does this compare to the oratory of Barack Obama? Because Barack Obama also had a very like our better angels yeah. kind of dialogue. And obviously it was a very different time. Like now we can really say without irony that that was a hopeful kind of um period, at least when he first came to office. And I do, I do feel like there's a great difference between these men when it comes to oratory messaging and how they try and rally the country. And I kind of wonder from your position, I don't know how much you covered the Obama folks, but like, how, how does it feel different to you? So I covered 2012, uh, I covered Romney in 2012 for a few months, and then I covered the Obama White House for two years. Um, it is night and day 
to be <laughs> to be honest with you, like they're just so everything about them is different, which is at the core of why their relationship and that's you know six other whole podcasts aside, uh, yeah. their relationship is so fascinating. But their approach is different. How they speak is different. Their ability to deliver their message is completely different. And I think. You know, there's a bit of a complex there sometimes with the Biden folks, but they would acknowledge in their candid moments that Obama was a uniquely generationally talented individual when it came to conveying his message. I I think Biden is more kind of from the gut, blunt force, this is what I feel, not soaring rhetoric. Uh, People connect to it because they can hope and dream off of it. Right. Which gets him in trouble sometimes, which he admits um, when he speaks off the cuff and then you've got lots of communications people kind of scurrying around trying totally. to but here's the irony collect his thoughts literally <laughs> yes totally and it's it's a huge reason why they have kept him somewhat cloistered and sheltered and in, inside of a bubble over the course of the last two and a half years which for the life of me having covered him very closely when i was at the white house i will never understand uh wait why because one of a his primary issues right now is that he's the oldest president. He woke up this morning, the oldest president in history. He will wake up again tomorrow, the oldest president in history. Every day he wakes up, he'll be the oldest president in U.S. history. And that has become a bigger issue than I think they expected it to become. The fact that he is a very capable speaker and is, in fact, in all of my interactions with him, quite with it, from a cost-benefit perspective, doesn't it net out in your favor for people to see that, even if he flubs once or twice, um, or says some things that you wish he wouldn't have said, versus whatever it is they're dealing with right now? So let's try and make sense of this moment where you and I saw, you know, all of a sudden the White House communications people were on like every network and TV show kind of talking with anchors. He came out and did a speech. Do you actually see a pivot? Are they getting out more? Is this a response to the last couple of months saying like, look, you guys aren't doing a good job conveying whatever your achievements are? Like, think about their reaction and what do we see? I think they all converge into one on uh, on some level, which is they hear the criticism. I think it's very true that they scoff at a lot of it. I think that they have massive chips on their shoulders because they, they were told they couldn't do it in 2020 and they did. They were told they're going to get worked out I hear out they keep like a spreadsheet of people's comments that, I, I, read, I literally read that uh, for the first time uh, a couple of days ago. Or like or a yesterday. vault of pundit yeah, commentary. No, they're, they're very aware of, of what people say and how they say it. And, and look, I, I, I'm okay with that. Like if you want to be motivated by things, do, do your thing. I think that they spent the last year building a campaign – and intentionally so. I, I never had the sense in reporting on them while I was at the White House that they were going to do big kickoffs or big events or any of that type of stuff in this first year. They're doing a lot of under the hood stuff as opposed to kind of out in public stuff. At the same time, they recognize that some of the criticism had merit. And I think at the same time, they recognize that like Trump's out there and Trump's dominating the Republican field. And Trump has f- managed, and I think in part this is because he has a much more professional operation with him this time around, that they have managed to keep him out of like the day-to-day in a way that actually hurts Biden, right? Like I remember like- I mean, he is spending that time kind of in court, but- Yes, but like (laughs) he controls those moments, right? Where like he's walking in, he has the big photog moment and like maybe says two or three things to a pool cam and then walks away. It's not like extended Q&As like he used to do that got him in a lot of trouble during COVID. And I remember like a couple months into Biden's time at the White House, one of his senior people sitting down and being like, man, I hate myself for saying this, but I wish he was still on Twitter because that would help us because people have forgotten like just how insane that time period was. And it's because like people aren't on truth 
or whatever it's called. People aren't watching his campaign rallies. So many people in this moment have just completely tuned out of everything for, again, a, a, a very long discussion and fascinating discussion to have um, at another time that like they've had a hard time harnessing, you know, this is real. Like we're doing this again, whether you like it or not. And this is going to be a binary choice. And let's put those two up together again and have people make the decision. And right now they don't think that people view it like that. And so they need to be more forceful uh, and kind of bringing that to the forefront. I'm speaking with Phil Mattingly, and we'll have more after the break. I know you're busy. We all are. But if you have 15 minutes or so every week and want to better understand the news, I've got a podcast I think you should check out. I'm David Rind, and I'm the host of CNN One Thing. Every week, I call up a plugged-in CNN correspondent, and we talk about a story they're covering. We break it down carefully and with context without the unnecessary noise so you can get on with your week. That's CNN One Thing. Listen on your favorite podcast app. I'm back with Phil Mattingly, anchor of CNN This Morning and former chief White House correspondent. Phil's been talking with us about campaign speeches, the Biden White House and messaging in this campaign. So you said something that a lot of people have long criticized slash suspected of us as reporters. (laughs) (laughs) but you're saying has some merit, which is that there was some value to Trump being on mainstream social media like Twitter. I I don't know that I think there was value to it (laughs) for my life. Um, There was value from, I think you talked to, and it's not just inside the White House, I think Democrats have come more to the idea of when he was on Twitter, you saw it in real time and everybody saw it in real time. And for some reason, you know, truth social just hasn't quite taken off yet uh, to the extent where it seems like it's going to be bankrupt every other quarter. And so people aren't seeing it as much. Which is not to say he's not active. Like he releases videos there. Yeah. He does long stream of conscious tweets. there, saying some pretty intense things about the kind of retribution he wants to get. But you're right. We don't cover it the same way. That's the thing, right? But part of me feels like that was one of our positive lessons learned. Whenever I say we, I mean we, the media. Like that we were over covering every thought he had. No argument. I I could not agree more. I, I think the calibration is a critical component of the evolution of how we cover people like that. But I think at the same time, if you're a political hand inside the Biden campaign that knows that you're going up against this guy and you watched in 2020 during those COVID briefings in the White House briefing room, which went forever every single day. And he was talking about, you know, shooting people up with bleach like there was some merit to that. If to use your, the buzzword, if you wanted to draw a contrast like <laughs> that, that's helpful. Um, and then like the degree. rest of the culture would seize on it. Right. Like yeah. the late night hosts or totally. whoever then everyone sort of gets involved and can say, oh, this is like kind of weird. I think it also goes back to like, I think people are consuming media, not, and this isn't like a, the kind of bifurcated way in which people are consuming media now conversation, but I think people are consuming political news very differently now in the sense that like, I don't think a lot of people are. I, I think people yeah. are so tuned out and it's like, you know, the whole kind of vibe of the moment of like, I'm just so tired of everything and I don't want to deal with this again. I know. I was talking with Tara Palmieri, you know, uh, the puck reporter, yeah. she's a political reporter. And on her last podcast, she said, uh, democracy is important, but I don't know that everyone's thinking about it. It's like how men always think about ancient Rome. 
um, which is like a couple memes. <laughs> Are you one of the men who think? No, about I'm not. Well? And like one of yeah, our kids, I don't think this is a real. One thing. of our this kids on like the team, like I, I, I try and stay attached to my youth uh, with uh, with the younger folks on our team who like asked me after the show, like, do you think about Rome a lot? And I was like. No, never. Why? And then it took me like it's another two hours to understand why they to were To like asking. Google it, try yeah, and get the joke. No, Everyone that. who's listening who doesn't know, count yourself lucky. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also know that Phil looks like he's about 28. So <laughs> the fact that he's calling anyone the kids is like a total delight to me. Um, but it does get at what you're talking about, that people's minds aren't there yet. And I know I was like in a mall a few days ago and the person selling me jeans said, okay, it's not really going to be Donald Trump yep. and Joe Biden, right? Like, she was like, tell me the truth. <laughs> and I was like, girl, that's the truth. You in danger. Like, this is the thing that's happening. But there is still, and I don't blame them, because between the court cases, the attempts to throw Donald Trump off the ballot, the calls from inside the House, quote unquote, with Democrats saying like, hey, Biden, maybe you should step aside. And the wild couple of years the country has had, there is this sense that like anything could happen. Yeah, and I think there's to your point, there's a, some merit to feeling that the way. Anything is not these two guys on the. The, the, the right thing now. I would say, I, I mean, you've probably had a, a dozen of these conversations. Like people would call me, friends who aren't in politics, don't care about this stuff generally, like buddies from college who live, you know, way away from Washington D.C., and be like, "Yeah, okay, but like Gavin's really going to run." Right. Or like somebody else has come like they're just setting this up for something. And I'm like, guys, like, I promise you, like, I talk to his closest advisors on a daily basis. This is real. Like, this is not like everybody's in line. Like they once you got the National Dems to line up behind him, like it's over unless he makes a different decision. And barring health, like there is no different decision. And to your point, I because think that, it's like, just too late in the year it's too, or it's too late in the year. But also, like, he's the infrastructure. He's like. It's his team. It's him. And it's hard to just hand that off. It's At this stage, like, how? I don't know of a pathway. Once filing deadlines happen, like, all that type of stuff, the, the kind of mechanics of things. But I think more broadly is that, like, he wants to do this. He's the incumbent president. And I think more importantly, very early on, and you get, his team doesn't get credit for this, but, like, they locked in. They ensured that every major national Democrat was a campaign co-chair, was on the team. And they weren't doing that because they thought that the threat was coming, but they, they were weren't. doing it because it was a talented new generation of <laughs> up-and-comers they wanted to protect and elevate. But they, they weren't no. unaware <laughs> of the conversations that were happening. It's the same with the with the, the primaries process, Clear the order the field. in which the primaries yeah. are. Like They made a lot of moves between who they got behind Biden in their campaign and the structure of the primaries that I don't think people give enough credit for them. They're damn politically savvy to ensure that their boss, if he decided to run, which I think everybody assumed he was going to up until the moment he announced, that he would be in the best position possible within the Democratic Party. And that essentially eliminated, uh, strangled any opportunity for anybody else to step up without him making the move first. So do we expect the president to do some kind of I feel your pain economic speech at some point? Or because the very next one, um, which is going to be happening uh, on the day we are taping this, we're having this conversation on, on Monday the 8th, and he's going to be at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina. Obviously, the site of that brutal massacre in 2015 yeah. that killed nine churchgoers. And I actually like covered that story. And Congressman Jim Clyburn, who's like a major ally for Biden, it's his state, right? Like there's a lot of reasons to be there. What's your sense of why they're there? 
Like, how does it fit into this narrative? I think there's a couple. I think one, like, black voters are the cornerstone of the Democratic coalition, period, end of story. Black voters are three of the four cornerstones of Biden's coalition. Right, Um, just by virtue of raw turnout. By turnout. Strength and consistency of turnout. Yep, and... South Carolina is the reason that Joe Biden's president. Uh, he's the reason and possibly the, the reason Kamala Harris is vice president. Yes. Jim Clyburn extracted a lot of concessions, let's say, out of Biden for helping to orchestrate that turnaround in that campaign. Concessions that ended up benefiting Biden. It's why South Carolina's moved to the first part of the primary calendar. But it also means that, you know, Biden folks, there's some pressure there to perform in that primary. Which you might say, well, wait, what? There's a there's a primary. The vote like they want people to turn out. They want a strong showing. Like no, they don't think Dean Phillips is going to, you know, beat him in New Hampshire where he has to be a writing candidate or any of that type of stuff. But they realize that perception matters a lot here. Right. Momentum matters a lot here. And, and so if they all want- of a sudden, like Cornell West wins some significant point of young voters or black voters or just if someone else makes a real showing, I guess it would add fuel to the fire that he has a problem. Right. And and I think that if you know his operation, they're building right now. Like the Valley Forge speech is to connect to, it's yes to have the flash, like this is the big launch moment, here we go. But it's all going to connect to something that they recognize where they have shortcomings, right? They know democracy was a much more integral issue in the midterm elections than anybody suspected. And if you disagree, take a look at Pennsylvania, Arizona. Um, you can kind of go up and down the list of Governor Michigan, governor's races, secretary of state races, AG races, where Dems wiped out election deniers in race after race after race, which they found very validating and also uh, kind of a lesson that they learned. So there's that. If you go to the speech on Monday, black voters critical, yes, to their coalition, essential, but also an area where they have seen a lot of slippage, where they know that they have work to do. So there's that. And Which I think slippage see, meaning the polls every once in a while that say one or two percentage points of uh, black respondents might say, I'd consider voting for someone else. Yes. And particularly with black men. And, and you and Ashley Allison had an amazing conversation about this in your show la- uh, last month, I think. But they, they know there's work to do there. But I think it's bigger than that in the sense of if exits in 2020 were showing black voters were something like 89 percent for Biden. Right now, polling has them at like 62, 63 percent. Like that's that's a death knell for them if that stands. Now, they assume they work under the theory of the case. Those voters will come home because they're Democratic voters. They're always Democratic right. voters. They will come home. But the problem is not usually coming home. It's turning Turn out. out. Yep. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's, like, it's apathy. They may still like you, but if they are just like. This is a rematch. I don't care. Maybe he'll win already or maybe I just don't care or maybe he hasn't done anything for, you know, this community or that community. That's where they panic. I feel like that traditionally with campaigns when they talk about excessively about turnout. Totally. The people who love you cannot stay home or else then you can't focus on the people who only kind of like you and need some help turning out. I mean, especially in an election where your base is what will, you know, the sliver of people that are persuadable or that are in the middle or whatever you want to call it is is so much smaller than it has ever been and has just grown that uh, in that direction over the course of the last several cycles. And so I think that you will see a, kind of a continued build. Like there will be young voter stuff. There will be like all of the pieces of their coalition as they thread over the top of it, the democracy argument trying to 
continue to reach out to those folks, the suburban voters, the, you know, kind of the white middle-aged women voters, where they have, it's not just democracy, but it's freedom, you know, so then you, you kind of loop in abortion as well, um, which is, I think, what they think is is by far the most effective message and issue they have. So I, I think that they, like, they're, they know they have a plan. <laughs> I think that the, and it will build over time. And I think that's what we're seeing the start of right now. And the, the other thing I'd flag too is like the state of the union speech is going to be, a, is a big deal for them. Um, and they know that that'll probably be the biggest audience with the exception of maybe a convention speech that he has this entire year. And so a big part of this first three month period of the, the election year is building towards that. And that's what I think you see every event kind of drive towards that moment. Phil, thanks so much for getting into this. I know it seems a little nerdy, but fundamentally campaigns are about information and shaping information, right, that the voter gets before they make their decision. And it helps to have someone like you to kind of figure out what we're looking at. So thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, Adi, uh, after putting up with me for an entire week on my I show. Did. And, and it was uh, so early in the morning. <laughs> and waking it was up. so and early. Living in a hotel, you know, it was uh, any time. Anytime you need me, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and, and honored to be on. I love it. I love it. Maybe State of the Union. That'll be another one because uh, like you, I've covered so many. <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's tough when you've covered a lot of them to, to, to make it them sing. It feels but... like a piece of theater. You know, I think <laughs> totally. for the public, they're like, wait, why do I care about this? How is this different from the last one? And they're still fascinating to me like you. So we'll nerd out on that when that comes up. Love it. Can't wait. Bill Mattingly is former chief White House correspondent for CNN. He's now the host of CNN This Morning. That's all for today. We'll be back with new episodes on Thursday. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Dan Bloom. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Dan DeZula is our technical director. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We got support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dionora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andrus, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namorow. Thanks, as always, to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish. Thank you for listening. <laughs>